0: Welcome to Mosaic Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Mosaic Church Leeds based in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information on Mosaic Church, please visit mosaic-church.org.uk. Thank you for listening. All right, um, for those of you who don't know me or we haven't met, um, my name's Rich, um, and it's great to be kind of speaking to you today. Um, Over the next kind of bit of our time, we're going to be talking a bit about Joseph. Um, This is a series that we've kind of been in um, now for probably kind of three or four weeks. Um, And really, we're looking at Joseph, and it's told in the story of Genesis, so this is right at the very start, but it does make for incredible reading, right? This guy's life is incredible, but this is way more than that. It's way more than just an in-depth character study, because we find that in this young Hebrew shepherd boy, God uses him in an amazing way, okay? Um, And it's not just to save his family from starvation, although that happens. He uses him ultimately to preserve a promise that was given. Now, this promise is in Genesis 12, and it's that basically God would bless a man called Abraham, and that through him and through his family, the blessing would go out to the nations, and the nations would know something of who God is. However, where we stand tonight, is that that promise is on a knife edge. Because at the moment, there's no nation of Israel. That seed of promise rests with one family. And that family are about to go into, there's about to be a severe famine, and there's going to be starvation across the land, where people would just die. Okay, So where we live, we might struggle with the idea of famine. Okay, We have goods shipped in and out all the time. But I think if we were to live somewhere like Bangladesh, somewhere like that, we would have a lot more of an understanding of what famine actually looks like. The reality that when famine hits, crops fail and that people die. However, there's one member of that family that isn't at home in Israel, but he is in Egypt. He's a prisoner in a dungeon. He's been there for 13 years, and his name is Joseph. And we're about to see how Joseph, though unjustly treated at every turn so far, is in exactly where God needs him to be. And the lives of his family and the promise of salvation to the nations hangs on his response when he meets Pharaoh for the very first time. And we're about to see our two main characters meet. If this was a Hollywood blockbuster, this would be the scene that really you've all been waiting for. Joseph, worshipper and prisoner of the one true God. Sorry, prisoner and worshipper of the one true God. It's not a prisoner's God. He's about to meet Pharaoh, you know, the leader of Egypt, um, and basically the guy who set himself up as a god. Pharaoh knows nothing of Joseph yet, but you can bet your bottom dollar, Joseph knows all about Pharaoh. His regime has kept him away from his father and everything he's known for years. And at this point in the story, Pharaoh is about to ask for a favor. Let's find out why. You might want to read with us. It's going to come up on the screen behind. Uh, We're in 41, and we're going to read from 1 to 14. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile, when out of the river came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside them on the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven, sleek, fat cows. And then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep again and had a second dream. Seven ears of corn, healthy and good, were grown on a single stalk. After them, seven other ears of corn sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin ears of corn swallowed up the seven healthy ears, full ears. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. In the morning, his mind was troubled, so he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them. Then Pharaoh, sorry, then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, today I am reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. And each of us had a dream the same night and each dream had its own meaning. Now, he, now, a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as they interpreted and so he interpreted them to us. I was w- restored to my position, and the other man was impaled. So Sarah, Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved, changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Okay, so this is the third set of dreams so far in the whole narrative. First set of dreams were whose? Whose were they? Joseph's set of dreams. He interpreted them, and basically it was that his whole family were going to bow down to him. He told his family this went down very badly, and he was sold into slavery. Second set of dreams were whose? Well done for listening last week. They were the chief, they were the cupbearer and the baker's. Again, Joseph interprets the dreams. It goes well for the cupbearer, not so well for the baker. And Joseph asks the cupbearer that he would remember him. And he doesn't, forgets all about him. And here are our third set. And it's all about cows eating cows and corn eating corn. You might think it's like the wildlife show after the watershed. I mean, it is a little bit weird when you think about it. But if we're honest, I think we can all relate to this. We've all had dreams before where you wake up in the morning, and you just think, I would not like to have to tell that to anybody. You know, it's just weird. And, and this is that kind of dream. And Pharaoh, maybe unsurprisingly, he is worried about this. But it's, way more, it's a way more practical reason than just these kind of cannibalistic cows. The Nile represented power, right? And years of bad crops, would have basically meant the throne would have been weakened. And he's, fe- he's feeling like worried about this. So what does he do? Well, he calls for all the magicians and all the wise men. This is just a little window into the kind of power that this guy had. He calls, they come running, but no one can help. <coughs> Next, in steps, the ungrateful or maybe just forgetful cupbearer, who says basically, I know a guy, and he tells a story of how he was helped. Verse 12, now a young Hebrew was there with us and a servant of the captain of the guard, and we told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us. So, Pharaoh thinks he's found his answer in Joseph, and he wants some help. What's he going to do? Well, I want you to put yourself in Joseph's shoes for a second. If this had been your life up until now, okay, in brief, he's had a dream, he's been rejected by his family, he's been beaten, stripped, thrown in a pit, sold into slavery in a foreign land, falsely accused of rape, given no trial, finds himself in a dungeon, and he's forgotten about. Like, if that had been your life, what kind of desire would you have to serve someone like Pharaoh? Because that's what's being asked of him. Pharaoh wants an interpretation of the dream he's had. Joseph has a choice to make, okay? A choice that we face most days, that is, to serve or not to serve. You know, even just this um, week, I heard a story of how there was this experiment done in London where they took a four-year-old and a six-year-old child, okay, they took them down to Oxford Street, and they put them there, and they kind of stepped back, and they probably had cameras and stuff, and they basically said, ask these children to ask for directions. And the social experiment was, let's see kind of how long it takes before someone does something about this. So, four-year-old and a six-year-old, who wants to have a guess how long it took before somebody stopped and spoke to them. How many minutes? Three hours. Three hours, wow. you got a bad view of society there. Well, not quite three hours. Half an hour, 30 minutes went by, four-year-old and a six-year-old on Oxford Street, walking around, asking for directions, everyone just charging past. They worked out that that basically means about 500 people had passed. 500 people, not bothered speaking to them, 500 people, not bothered to serve. And I wonder what comes to mind when you think of serving someone. Like, for some, I think it is associated with weakness. You know, why should I serve? I should, like, be served. Is that not the world's message? You know, why serve when you can be served? You know, people often live lives chasing wealth and power so that one day, like one day in the future, they can get to the place where no longer have to lift a finger, just be served. We see films about it all the time. But let me put to you that I actually believe that to serve somebody else is quite a powerful thing to do, that it's not a weak thing. And depending on your attitude and the way you serve will depend on how it's received. To serve someone without expectation of getting something back, with no conditions attached, is a statement of selflessness, of love, of respect. And it shows that person that you're already for them, In a relationship, it's like love in action. It's like making it real, it's demonstrating it. In a friendship, it could be giving up your time when you've just got other stuff to do to go and help that person. You know, a friend of mine made this very real to me this week. Just on Thursday, I was driving home from work, um, and I kind of felt the car, like it started to kind of handle a bit weirdly. I had radio one on and like, I couldn't really hear anything. I turned it off and there was just this dull rumbling. It was like, Rrrr. And I was like, I know exactly what's happened here. So I pull over, it's getting dark. I pull over in Woodhouse and I get out of the car and my fears are realized I've got a flat back tire. As soon as I got out, the heavens opened, right? It started to absolutely pour down that this is the proof that God does have a sense of humor. And I was like, what am I going to do now? So I get my phone out and I ring a friend who was just a few cars in her head. I say, Joey, can you come back? Can you help me? I've got a flat tire. He comes back and he's got a dodgeball tournament to go to. Yeah, people really do play that. He's got a dodgeball tournament to go to. <laughs> and he's like, I have got my own stuff to do. No, he's not like that. He doesn't do that at all. He just gets, goes to the boot of his car, gets out a massive umbrella, comes and he stands there and he holds for about half an hour this umbrella over me while I change the tyre. All right? He's really wet. I'm really grateful. And he serves me in that way for half an hour. All right? Yeah, go Joey. He's, yeah, he's got a mention as well. I'm going to tell him I'll, I'll use him. But he chose to stay. He didn't have to stay. But he chose to stay. And maybe immediately you can think of some people that you'd have no problem serving, but then maybe you can think of some people who you find it really quite like, difficult to serve. Just don't look around the room at this point. I just saw two people over there just look right in each other's eyes. Um, but that is the reality of it, and that is Joseph's dilemma right here, right now. He didn't know it at the time, but the future of his family and the future of the nation of Israel all rests on his decision, on his response. What's he going to do? Is he going to serve the guy who represents all that keeps him in slavery in Egypt? Well, I want to say this. There are three, I think, possible barriers, um, possible reasons that Joseph could have opted for that would have stopped him from serving. And I can be- think they're just as real for us today. So we're going to take a quick look at these. The first one is fatalism. Okay? Joseph could have been fatalistic in his approach. Joseph could have thought, you know what, I'm probably going to die in prison. And there's nothing I can do to change my own circumstances. So why should I help you? I've been betrayed by my family, I've been almost murdered, I've been sold into slavery, I've been accused of things I haven't done, I've been left here to rot. Like, why should I help you, Pharaoh, on your throne? You've had a bad dream, I've had a bad life, my friends. You die, if I die, then you die. Life's been, cruel to, life's been cruel to me too. It's been cru- it will be cruel to you too. That could have been his approach. And I think we see this all the time. When life's hard, we can kind of lose sight. We can forget that God has a purpose in what he's doing. And in our circumstances, when we can't get perspective, we can just sit back, possibly, and nurse disappointment. And basically, our actions are saying, I give up. You might hear it said in in our culture like this, I haven't been helped, so I'm not going to help anybody else. Why should I give to charity? Charity's never helped me. Joseph chooses, though, to trust in God's big picture plan, even when he has no perspective on it at all. He doesn't sit back. He's not inactive. He doesn't say, what's the point? He doesn't give in to fatalism. The second barrier, I think, is self-righteousness. And this could be one we opt for. Joseph could have chose not to help out of a feeling of just, I am better, out of being self-righteous. He might think, you don't follow the one true God, Pharaoh. You're a wicked and vicious man. Why should I help you? You've had a bad dream, good, you deserve it. Again, this is a common view in our culture. It's almost like the idea of karma. You've done bad things, well, bad things will happen to you. You've made your bed, so lie in it. These are all phrases we hear. In our culture, we see it, a lot of people, why should I help an addict? Their decisions have got them there. Why should I help someone who's totally out of work? It's their own fault. I have got a nice family and a nice job, and things are going well for me because I have worked there to earn it. If they haven't, then that is up to them. And you know, I used to see this all of the time, and the thing that surprised me the most was, I think, my own reaction to it. Okay, let me explain. I used to um, work and live in Manchester, and the kind of area that I was in was charted around, it was like the top 10 most deprived areas in the UK while I was living there. And I would often spend a lot of my time, I would befriend, spend time with people who would often make decisions that were detrimental to their own circumstances, and they would do it time and time again. Often the story would be you would support someone, you would journey with someone, and as soon as you really feel like you're getting somewhere, bang, something would happen, then make a decision, and it would be back to square one. I'd spend like, long hours working with a young person saying, for you to get a job is a good thing. I'd get the application form. I'd go around, I'd speak to the parents. I'd be like, who maybe don't even work themselves, and be like, he needs this opportunity. Like He needs this experience. This will be good for him. Like, let's support him in this. And you, you'd like help them fill it in. You'd do all the stuff. And then like the day before the interview, like, something had happened, and the next day they wouldn't even turn up. Like they'd just make a decision not to bother. Or another occasion, we worked with a guy called Lee. Uh, He was thirty years old. He'd gradually had, really, his family, his job, everything stripped away by alcohol. And one day, like he he came to us and he said, "I really want to change my circumstances." And he says, "I want to go to rehab, right?" So we were like, okay, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna do this with you. And every day, for about a month, he would come into the office and he would make a phone call to rehab centre and say, I'm still serious about this. Every day they wanted him to do that. Every day, come and ring. Every day, come and ring. Some days would be worse than others, but he would make sure he got through the door and he would do it for a month. And we were like, yes. It even got to the point where the night before we were meant to go, Sam, my friend, and the guy who was in the church, he said, like, I'm not gonna leave this to chance. He said, Lee, me and you are having a sleepover, my friend. You are gonna to come to church with me. We're gonna sleep there. We'll put a film on the big screen. Basically, Sam was like, I do not want the night before for something to happen, I'm gonna a bender and miss this opportunity. I'm not willing to have it, he said. I said to his wife, I'm having a sleepover with Lee in the church. It's totally fine. Okay. Right, it's gonna be great. And he did it. What happens? Well, we got Lee there. And we came back to Manchester. And I reckon it was two days later, he walks into the back of the church one Sunday. I think we got him there on a the Friday. By the Sunday, he walked in the back, and we all saw him, and our heads just dropped. And basically, he couldn't have a smoke and watch EastEnders when he wanted to, so he's like, I'm out there. He forgot all the reasons why he wanted to be there, all that month's hard work, and he was back, back in Manchester, back into his old circumstances. And let me tell you, it would be painful, and it would be frustrating. And a lot of people would say to me, there's the proof, what a waste of time. They say, if they're not willing to change their circumstances, why bother with them at all? Like, I wouldn't even speak to that guy again. And let me tell you, I think that view is just totally self-righteous. Because it's basically saying, you only deserve help if you're a good person. It assigns value to a person based on what they've done, not like just on who they are. And the reason that us as a team, we could go through that cycle with these guys over and over again is because we didn't consider ourselves better than them. All right? We didn't consider ourselves better than them. So you will never serve anybody when ultimately you're looking down on them. You'll never serve anybody in your life when really they know that you are looking down your nostrils at them. If that is the kind of the place, if that is how you see them. And I've told you before, my biggest challenge in all of that was my own response to my friends when that would happen. You see, I would become self-righteous to those people who were self-righteous to my friends, to the people that I worked with. I would start looking down my nose at the people who looked down their nose at the people that I worked with. Does that make sense? Like, it would bring a self-righteousness out of me. I'd be like, you don't have a clue. I'm right, you're wrong. And really, deep down, i would start to feel like I'm better than these guys because I work with these people. And and that's what would happen. Guys, let me ask, where in your lives are you tempted to be self-righteous? And where could that be a barrier to you serving other people? You know, I'm not sure anything will kill a servant heart more than self-righteousness. And we see Joseph doesn't give in to it. How do we know Well, he serves Pharaoh? Let's have a look at how he does that. Does he do it out of self-interest? Because I think this can be the third barrier, okay? He could have served him out of self-interest. And it goes like this. I'll help you, Pharaoh, but only in a way that, in reality, I'm the one who's getting helped. I'll be your dream interpreter, so I can make myself invaluable to you so you need me around and that way I get out of prison. The thinking here is, You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. I do something for you, but only really if I get something in return. And we see that Pharaoh doesn't do that. Sorry, Joseph doesn't do that. He doesn't try and bargain with Pharaoh. He doesn't try and bargain to get himself, cut himself a good deal. So what are we to do and what is Joseph to do? Well, let me put to you that I think there is a fourth option. And I think it is better than all of the rest. Serve God and serve others. See, Joseph can choose to serve Pharaoh because in doing so he's serving God. And this is what Joseph does. Take a look at verse 15. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it. But I've heard it said that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied. But to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Joseph does it. He nails it. He chooses to serve Pharaoh as a way to serving God. Joseph recognized that God is at work in Pharaoh. And if God is doing something, giving Pharaoh this dream, then he's wanting to do something with Pharaoh. And he is humble enough and obedient to God. And he says, I can't, but God can. See, Joseph sees that God loves Pharaoh and the people of Egypt, and he doesn't want them to die in this famine. Joseph trusts that God is bringing about his purposes and his plans through Pharaoh and through Egypt. What happens next in the story? Well, this is how it all plays out. Pharaoh tells Joseph the dream. Joseph interprets it. Both the skinny cows and the the healthy ones, both the good corn and the bad corn, they all represent the same thing there's going to be seven years of plenty. We're talking abundance of crops, but that's going to be followed by seven years of absolutely devastating famine. Joseph interprets a dream. It basically leads to Pharaoh promoting Joseph out of the dungeon, out of the prison, and it becomes like prime minister. And he's the guy that is then put in charge of having a plan to feed everyone, both in Egypt and in the surrounding lands. You see, Joseph's choice to serve despite his circumstances means the promise of God to create a people for himself that would go on to bless the nations lives on. Do you see that? So what do we see from Joseph's story? Well, it's serve God diligently, even when you're in the most difficult of times, most difficult of places, because through doing that, through that obedience, God will bring about his purposes on the earth. Easy to agree with, in principle. But I want to ask the next question of, what about when I just don't want to? What about when you just don't want to? What are we to do then? Well, I think your call to do it isn't really enough. I think, you, you know, you'll find joy in it in the end. honestly, I don't think that is enough either. How do we not just, like, white-knuckle it, you know when, if you've ever been on a roller coaster, and someone's persuaded you on, and you like hate them, and uh, this happened with my mum once, and she got on and she just like bit down and, and grabbed those bars and was like, Hurr! no, sorry, that was the wrong noise. She was like, ah, That's, she wasn't, yeah, oh, but like, <laughs> she she hated it. That is the point, okay? She white knuckled it. She did not want to be there. And to get through, like, she, like, honestly, she had her eyes closed. She couldn't have enjoyed, like, any of it. How do we not serve like that? Because no one looks good like that. <laughs> like, we, how do you, even the person you're trying to serve, we are like, oh, just don't bother. Seriously, like, it's painful for you, I can see. Like, how do we not serve in that way? Not do it through gritted teeth. And I think this is important, because a lot of the time we all know to serve is a good idea. We we won't just know it in principle. We might even know, believe that that is it's just true, and sometimes you might even want to want to. Does that make sense? You might even just I like I really want to want to, but the reality is, the desire is just not there. Let me tell you kind of how this sometimes has worked out at home. Um, if there are stuff that I know that I should do around the house, okay, what? do you think is going to get me off the couch to do it and serve Beth? Like, what is the thing? Is it to remember that I have a duty to do it and that just over six months ago, I stood up in front of a load of people like this and I I said that I would serve her in that way, that I would honor her in every way. Is that going to get me off the couch? Well, it might, but I'll tell you from experience, it doesn't. (laughs) The thing that's going to get me off the couch is remembering all that Beth really does for me and how much like I love her. That is the thing that's going to get me up, off the couch, stop doing the things I want to be doing and to do to serve her in that way. And that happens just every time, really. It's just really easy. Um, Sorry. I was looking at my wife, who was just laughing heavily. No, but I'm getting better at it, and that, that is kind of what happens. That is the better way to deal with it. And I want to suggest, well, actually, no, let's go here first. What about in the workplace? What about when the person you know you've got to serve, you don't love, like, your wife? Definitely, hopefully not. Like, what about when that person, like, you've got to serve that person? And you, you don't love her in the same way. You don't love that person in the same way. Like, what is going to create that desire to serve more, Or what about the person that you live with? What about that person in your uni house that, like, plays the music really loud, even though they know you've got to be up early? I haven't lived in a uni house, but I've heard it happens a lot. And, like, it's just so frustrating. Or that person at work that just ticks you off, that rubs you up the wrong way all the time, and you're like, I make so much effort, but every time, like, they just don't change. What is going to create some kind of desire to, like, serve them? If you're a Christian here today, I want to suggest that this is what it's going to be. We need to remember that there was a time when we were enemies of God, when we were far from him, and that... He chose to serve us. He chose to serve us, like, even when we were in that place by dying on the cross. Just take a look. Romans 5 says this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his love For us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, that time when you were so far from him, God chose to serve us in an act of the most extravagant love. Jesus wasn't fatalistic towards us. He didn't say, you've made your mess. Your brokenness is a result of your selfishness. I'm going to leave you there. You made your bed. You lie in it. He wasn't self-righteous towards us. He didn't look to his own interests. You know, the night before Jesus died, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, on his knees, sweating blood, it's not figurative, you can speak to a doctor, and literally he's so stressed that the sweat is like turning to blood. He said, not my will, not my interest, not my will, but yours. And he endures the cross for us. When we had no moral high ground, nothing to be self-righteous about. He chose to serve us in death. And I want to suggest that that is the truth that is powerful enough to change any of our desires. That as we realize the depth of what he's done for us, it has to move us from looking inwards, just looking at ourselves and our needs, to looking outwards, to looking at others to serve. And it's no longer through gritted teeth. It's no longer because I know I should. But it becomes the most natural thing to do.